The Spin-Off Podcast Network. You're listening to Business is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business is Boring is brought to you by SparkLab, offering inspiration and practical advice to help businesses find their edge. To hear more about SparkLab, including details about the latest events, workshops, and business tools, visit sparklab.co.nz. And now, here's your host, Simon Pound. You're listening to Business Is Boring, a podcast that wants to prove it's anything but. Business Is Boring is made by the spin-off with help from Vodafone Zone. Please welcome your host, Simon Pound. Hello and welcome along. We've got a bit of a double header this week. We're talking about a future model for sustaining quality journalism, first with an entrepreneur behind an app making it happen, and then with Duncan Grieve about how the spin-off are using it to make stories that matter that otherwise wouldn't be possible. And it's a real issue. All around the world at the moment, media is in a bit of a bind. Fake news, Fox News, clickbait, Mike Hosking. There are a lot of terrible things happening, but it's not all doom and gloom. In the wake of the holy what-the-hell disruptive force of President Trump, outlets like the Washington Post and New York Times have turned around years of subscriber decline as readers vote with their wallets about the importance of news and what's fake and what's not. And it's not just overseas. Locally, outlets like Scoop, Newsroom, Public Address and Here Up at the Spin-Off have all had funding from their readers to do more of the kind of work they value. Press Patron is the provider, the people behind the little Become a Supporter buttons that you may have seen popping up around the place. You might even have done it, so may be familiar with the model. The founder and CEO of that company, Alex Clark, saw this trend from years out, with a master's thesis turning into a real-world product, now in New Zealand, Australia and the US, helping 25-plus outlets harness their following, supplement ads, paywalls or whatever else is needed to keep the lights on, and the story's good. To chat the future of news, the product and the journey, Alex joins us now. Thanks, Simon. Good to be here. Hey, so tell me how you um, got started in all of this. Before you studied, you were actually deep in the media. Yeah, so for a couple of a couple of years, I worked as uh, the editor of Tearaway magazine. So it was a youth publication, used to go through high schools and universities. And uh, yeah, it was really good stuff. It was covering a whole wide, wide range of things from entertainment through to more serious issues. Um, and one of the many kind of casualties over the years is that advertiser-funded model yeah. uh, stopped working so well. Definitely. So it was, it was actually a bit heartbreaking when I was there. So it was during the global financial crisis. A whole lot of advertisers started freezing their budgets. Um, within the space of about a couple of months, we went from 64 pages all the way down to 28 pages. Um, then after I left, it was out of print within about 12 months. Oh, wow. And that was even with a massive uh, distribution model that was available in some of the biggest um, retail outlets and all the schools? Yeah, it just got to the point where there was, in addition to the global financial crisis, a transition away from print advertising over to digital advertising. And when you're online, 
the amount of revenue you can get from digital advertising is minuscule compared to the, the old numbers that used to be experienced in print. And it created an opportunity for you to head back to uni. <laughs> and so t- tell me... Uh, for the first time. Yeah, yeah. yeah right, right. T- yeah. T- tell me about what your, um, what, what your studies were and how that led you to this idea. So I was primarily focused on media studies and then I also went on exchange and started looking at the business models underlying journalism, um, a little bit of legal studies and business studies. Um, and then when I started doing my master's project, um, I just wanted to look at business models for journalism and we evaluated a whole range of different strategies side by side and asked people under which of these models are you actually prepared to pay for journalism. And what, what did that research say? So what we found is that if you lock up content and put up restrictions, there's an extreme resistance to pay for journalism under that model. So out of the 416 people that completed the survey, there was one person who said they'd definitely pay for their favorite site if it was locked up behind a paywall restriction. And yet, (laughs) that's the path that so many media providers went down. But what what, what else did you find in that survey that was an alternative? Yeah, so the more promising model that we found is that if you shift to a voluntary payment model where people can pay what they want and they can choose whether it's monthly or one time, um, the conversion rates went up much higher. So from the survey itself, it went from that 0.24% up to 1.4%. So might still sound like a small number. It's a significant increase when you look at the relative preference between these different models. And it turns out we're able to validate a lot of those stats um, after we launched at the start of last year. That's very interesting. So when you were doing this research, were there lots of um, big real-world examples uh, of that kind of pay-what-you'd-like, donate kind of approach to supporting uh, journalism? Or what were there more of the paywalls popping up? It was definitely the paywalls. Um, so the industry average at the time was half a percent of people were paying for sites when it was locked up. Um, there weren't a lot of examples of this voluntary model. There were a couple like the Texas Tribune, which was set up by um, a philanthropist in, uh, in Austin. Um, but the majority of examples of this donation model or this contribution voluntary model being used um, had been mostly within music and um, other forms of media like video and music videos and uh, art and other t- sorts of creativity. Um, but it did take a long time for media outlets to actually experiment with it as well. Yeah, and, and after you, you launched here, the, the Guardian were getting involved with that. that they're a very well-known version of that model. Yeah. I guess Wikipedia as well would be a, a slightly sideways version. Exactly, yeah. So, um, And the Wikipedia um, example too, when I was looking at their numbers that they, they published once, it was very similar conversion rates too in terms of uptake and then the averages so you got this research back put it into you know your thesis and then went well there isn't that much of a there isn't something to serve this this purpose to help journalism i'll start a company is that about it yeah we really wanted to make this infrastructure in terms of payments and memberships as easy as possible for the publishers and the readers um at the moment there are a whole lot of different systems that each have their own process for they often force you to create an account and then you can make a payment after you've done all the complications of jumping through the hoops we wanted to break down those barriers and kind of do it from reverse so you can just make a payment right from the start Um, if you want to create an account to manage your preferences that's an option right at the end Um, 
things like PayPal, for example, ask for your, your postal address and your, your zip code and your phone number. We, we want to get rid of as much of that as possible so that as soon as you're motivated to give and you want to support some high-quality journalism, there aren't barriers. You're not being um, put off and have to go through an ordeal to be able to do that. And so that concept of creating an easy way for people to support journalism they loved, what kind of support were you asking for? Because some of the ways that you have um, this model where people pay people to support them, uh, they can be micropayments or quite mm. small. What, what did you come in at? Um, so the model that we've used with Press Patreon is monthly and one-time contributions. Um, in the long term, we do want to explore things like micropayments, but uh, at the moment it looks like this model works really well and the model might evolve over time depending on what um, what readers want to see and what publishers think will work for them. What kind of average contribution are people making? So at the moment, uh, it's a 50-50 split between monthly and one-time supporters. And for the monthly contributions, the average is around $11.50 per month. So quite a high amount when you consider it's over $130 a year. Um, and for the one-time contributions, the average is $49. Um, and are you um, seeding that? Are you saying to people you should donate something, maybe $50? <laughs> uh, we've kept it completely open-ended. So there are some preset defaults like 5, 10, 20, 50, um, but there's also an open-ended one right at the bottom where um, we've had donations up to $1,000, and that's happened several times. Um, but people can donate anything from a dollar upwards, and that, that average just kind of emerges through that. And if you look at the percentage at different levels of um, giving... It is fairly well spread across, here's the cohort of 14% of people giving $100 or more, um, it's around 44% giving $50 or more, so it's not just being skewed by these massive amounts, there's people giving at every level. What kind of uh, you know, outlets did you start with? How did you, how did you get your first customer in this? Uh, so the very first customer was Russell Brown at Public Address and He'd been a strong advocate of this voluntary model for a long time, yeah, um, even before I did my research. Yeah, um, yeah. him and uh, Keith Ng had both done really interesting versions of that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and to be honest, honestly, I was, uh, I was a bit uh, sceptical that that would scale and that it would be consistent across a whole range of different sites. But um, it's been quite, yeah, quite um, enlightening and just awesome to see that there's that goodwill out there and these these stats have been stacking up across for profits, non profits, um, individual journalists all the way up to your larger organisations. What are the biggest people you're working with at the moment? Um, so the the largest sites in our network would be uh, you've got Newsroom, the Spin Off, Airtangata, Public Address, um, and in Australia we've got a couple of sites too. So one of them is called In Daily, and then we've got another one called Echo, which is um, community publication just north of Sydney. How are you growing the company? How many people have you got on board? <laughs> and you know, how, how are you managing to bring in these new uh, media customers? It's about five of us in total. And uh, I'm, at the moment, I'm predominantly a part-time workforce, but we're just about to increase that to full-time so that we can scale up the way that we reach out and connect with these different publishers from different backgrounds. But um, in terms of what we've achieved so far, that's been me emailing or phone, giving a phone call to people who I think might be interested, going to conferences, meeting people face-to-face, -face, and a lot of people through word of mouth sort of recommending us or they see our button on another site, 
see our branding and then go to the website and contact us. Are there international competitors? There are things that kind of, they dip their toes in elements of what we're working on. So you've got crowdfunding platforms like Patreon, Mm. but Patreon's completely focused on this monthly model. So what they're missing out on is the 50% of people that can only afford a one-time payment. Um, The other issue with Patreon is that you have to go to an external website to sign up before you've even given a dollar. Uh, And on top of that, you're visiting an external site with a different set of branding and a lot of people drop off when you have to open up a new window and go through that process. So we're trying to make sure that it's publisher-focused, it's got their branding, it's ubiquitous across each of the sites that we integrate with. So as soon as we embed it on a site, we're scaling to however many visitors that they've already accumulated over several years. So there are things as well like PayPal that just do straight credit card um, transactions, uh, payment gateways like Stripe. But they don't provide that whole integrated experience from start to finish, and they don't often let readers have full control over the amount and increasing, decreasing, cancelling, all those other added features. Do you see things like, um, you know, like Trump coming along and helping to re-energize some of the um, middle and liberal kind of media in the States? Do you see the Trump effect in the people you're working with, or do you see kind of uh, current events or happenings coming through? I think we've got a different dynamic. With Trump, that's created a conversation around the fake news versus quality news um, issue. Um, In New Zealand, though, when we see the highest level of support for each of our publishers and the journalists that are part of those teams, it often happens around those really hard-hitting stories. So when there's a big investigation that happens, has some sort of impact on wider society, and readers really rally behind that and uh, really appreciate it. So that's where we see the biggest support. It's that high-quality journalism, the stuff that's the opposite of the, the entertainment or the, the kind of cliched clickbait, um, for want of a better word. Um, yeah. It's... What, what kind of things help to get people to actually see past the message and click? And I say that because I must have clicked no to The Guardian a hundred <laughs> times, you know, or, or mm. by not clicking on that or Wikipedia. What kind of things actually make people jump over the divide and do it? I think it's different for everybody. Um, I do think it is when they read something that's really impactful and they can see the quality of that journalism, what it, how it resonates in terms of the flow-on effects. Um, I think some campaigns, such as the Wikipedia and the, the Guardian approach, they risk being a little bit too forceful. So um, the message is very needy. It's highlighted yellow. It takes up a lot of the screen. I don't know this is anecdotal, but I've had feedback that people find that a bit pushy. Um, we've taken a more um, passive approach where the campaign is there for when you're ready to become a supporter. So as soon as you're ready and you've found a piece of journalism that's really powerful, you can turn that passion into meaningful impact by becoming a supporter. And you can choose whatever level of support makes sense for you. Um, I, yeah, I think I think that's the key. Whereas other models try and force you into a particular level of giving, and it might be too much, or you might actually have more income and want to give more. Um, and how's the company going for you as a team? Uh, did it did it kind of stick to what you'd researched and what you thought the opportunity was? Yes, yeah, su- surprisingly. Um, so when I first did the market research and was trying to get the the prototype off the ground and actually turn it into a real product, there were quite a few cynics who thought, oh, people will never give money to journalism, they're just being nice in your survey. <laughs> and Or, or uh, 1.2% <laughs> of them. 
Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I firmly believed that those people were being genuine and you looked at the pattern of relative preference between all these options. It looked like the strongest, like it was a really strong model. Um, the average in the survey was $11. And for a couple of months, our average in real life was exactly $11. So it was, it was almost freaky how, how close it ended up. Um, the people that said definitely in the survey was 1.4%. Um, with our sites that launched back in February and March with us last year, they've achieved 1.2%. And they're still growing, so it looks like we're going to at least reach that, if not getting into the 2 or 3% mark for our most successful sites. Some of them have far exceeded, so one of our sites has achieved 5%. So I think there's a ton of potential in this model, and it might even, particularly those averages, for one time, we had no expectations. I think in the survey it was something like $5 for a one-time, and we ended up with 50 mm -hmm. um, I think there's a ton of potential here, and we're just at the start of this journey, and, and who knows how it keeps evolving over time. Yeah, how's the company going? Like, is it, um, you have investors on board and, uh, and are backed by people. How's it going? And has it, um, has it run to <coughs> the plan? Yeah, so we've been fortunate to have some quite... Um, passionate investors that care about the mission, but they also see the, the, the long-term financial potential of what we're working on too. Um, so early on, Bernard Hickey came on board as an investor. We've got Shamubil Yakub. Um, we've got a couple of um, more institutional um, investors, as well as a range of other people that are in the, the, the startup. So angel investment space, so they're in a, with a startup or a business background, but they care deeply about the impact of journalism. Um, yeah, and that's been able to get us off the ground. Um, we've been able to launch, we've been able to build a robust product um, that can scale rapidly, um, actually going through um, investment round at the moment so that we can then scale the team, move beyond me being the only salesperson and start um, moving beyond that. And the same in terms of the customer support for publishers and supporters, um, moving beyond just having me responding to everybody and actually having others on board who can, yeah, that's so cool. And how, how are you enjoying the journey? I mean, uh, coming from uh, being an editor, you, you have to organize a whole lot of things and run a commercial model. It's like running a little business, mm. then going into academia and then coming back out and suddenly CEO, founder, salesperson, <laughs> the whole in, uh, everything. fundraiser, everything. Yeah. How, how's it been? Yeah, it's, it's definitely been an incredible journey seeing it grow from this little seed of an idea actually turning to something tangible. And on top of that, like the most powerful thing is looking at the stories that have been produced by our network of sites um, and the impact those stories are having. So legislation has been changed. People have lost their jobs if they've abused their power. Um, businesses have changed their practices. Um, there's countless examples of what's been happening over the past year. And it's incredible to feel like being a small catalyst as part of that journey and looking at those outlets and how they can now justify either commissioning new projects, expanding their team so that they've got more people looking into these investigations. Um, from what I understand, the spin-off itself is working on about three to five stories at the moment. Um, those would, might not have occurred if this groundswell of community support was coming together to fund this very specific type of journalism. Such a cool thing to be part of. Yeah. And, and now having got the idea up and going, What's next? Kind of pushing into the States? Yes, I'm heading to the States tonight, actually, and I'll be there for 10 weeks. Um, most of my time will be in San Francisco, but also on the East Coast, so 
New York, Philadelphia, Boston, DC. There's there's a whole corridor of really big, um, big publications and smaller ones that are doing really worthy stuff. Um, got a conference in Texas, and then on top of that, I'm planning to hit the road and visit as many uh, as many uh, cities as I can. Yeah. In between that, so the first half is very rigidly planned and then the second half I'll play it by ear to see what opportunities crop up and move around where the opportunities are. Ah, that's so cool. And do you um do you get asked by people often for advice about how to take their ideas and make them happen? What advice do you give to people that ask that? Yeah, so I do I do get a few people that um ask for advice. Um the key the key thing is to always believe in your potential beyond what you might actually initially believe. Um, there's a ton that can be achieved um, if you just push those boundaries a little bit further. Um, yeah. Um, send emails to people that you think might never respond. Um, if they don't reply the first time, send another email in two weeks. If they don't respond then, send another one a week later. If they don't respond then, find their phone number. <laughs> Give them a call. Um, don't be absolutely annoying but um you'll be surprised how many people do respond and on top of that make sure you've got something of authentic value to offer them so i was quite fortunate when i was doing the masters that i had some research that many of these sites had never done they'd never done this side-by-side -side comparison of a whole range of models typically their research had been based on okay we're doing a paywall how can we maximize the conversion rates for our paywall and so when I was having those early conversations, um, quite enthusiastic responses came back when I was sh sharing my data to start with and then engaging on that longer term conversation of like, what should these features look like? How can this product work in your interests? And as well, being genuine in terms of like, 5% isn't a huge commission. Um, it's enough to run our business successfully um, at scale. Um, but from a publisher's perspective, we don't want to be milking it. Um, we want them to get as much of those donations as possible, and we want to be far cheaper than if they were trying to build this from scratch. Yeah, yeah, which is a good, a good place to be. Is there anything that you wish you'd known earlier? I think that it, it is a, it's a, it's a roller coaster. It's a, it's an exciting journey. It has its ups and downs, but it sounds cliche, but things always do work out. Um, there's always another opportunity around the corner. Other things that you think might have been missed opportunities result in open doors elsewhere. The missed opportunities, sometimes they circle back and they become a new opportunity in the future. Um, I think the key is putting, putting boundaries in perspective and making sure that you always move beyond them and don't get, don't get disheartened. Yeah. Hey, so thank you for joining us to share the journey so far. Alex Clark of Press Patron. And I can't wait to see what's next. To chat about the other side of the equation, I've grabbed Duncan Grieve, managing editor up here at the spin-off, to chat about how they use Press Patron and what it allows. G'day, thanks for coming in. Kia ora, thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks, thanks for walking around the corner. Well, what led you to use it? What, what was appealing about what Alex wandered up with? I think I was initially actually a little bit sceptical. Um, the, the idea of having our audience fund us on an ongoing basis, I, I sort of was worried that it might not work. And we'd, we'd done it on campaigns in the past, uh, most notably the War for Auckland, and it had gone really well. But 
I guess our, our whole business model is about um, corporates and NGOs facilitating work that's public facing rather than a sort of a subscription type model and I felt like it might be a step in that direction so when they first launched I, I had it on a kind of a watching program but I met with Alex and, and sort of you know I liked the cut of his jib and uh, you know he, he sort of brought us numbers but, uh, from, from some of the other sites that they'd been working with and it, it started to look like a an interesting proposition it, particularly if we you know I, I felt like the way we could justify it was if we could frame it as allowing us to do work that we otherwise really do struggle to do and that's um, ultimately what led to the spin-off long form fund and so how did you you launch that with a a post announcing what you wanted to do and then uh have that as a banner on certain kind of content through the site how, how's that gone when we first launched it was quite an amazing um response i think there is there's a lot of really good investigative and long-form work happening in New Zealand um, while at the same time being nowhere near enough. Um, I think you know the Stuff Circuit um, and their new national correspondence team, the Heralds, um, I, I forget what they call it, but they, they've got a, a, a team you know, with, with Kirsty and Matt and Jared Savage and so on who've done fantastic work. But there are just so many stories that require this kind of effort. And um, we we have done that kind of work in the past, but it is very, very organizationally draining. And we so the idea was that we would set up a fund that would um, pay a rate that we can't ever justify, that no magazine in New Zealand can pay um, that we're aware of, and try and take on stories that are particularly difficult. And... Uh, there was an amazing response to it. We we got sort of a rush of one-off and ongoing donations that mean I think to this point we've we've had around $15,000 come through, which I think is pretty staggering given that we haven't put out a, a single piece of work that has come from the long-form fund. We initially planned to have one out by Christmas, but the nature of these stories is, is that they drag on. And they are really tricky and, and time-consuming and, and often legally complex, and that's, yeah. that's another cost that has to be borne. Yeah, I mean, the legal fees for a 1,500-word story would be far and above uh, ahead of any kind of production costs in, in normal circumstances even. Yeah, we, we're lucky in that we've got some lawyers who give us a very, um, you know, it's, it's, it's not pro bono, um, though it has been in the past, but it's, it's very much not market rates either, and it does mean that, this very difficult work, um, very complex work, we, we, are, we are still able to do it. Um, and the idea was that it worked for both our staff and um, freelancers. And in the case of the first story, which we published uh, this week, it was a combination of the two. And where for our staff, it allows us to take in freelance contributions to, to allow them to be kind of seconded to a project like this. With a freelancer allows them to dedicate big chunks of their time to it, and um, you know I'm I'm really proud of the piece, and um, you know it was near on six months in in the making, but and it absolutely couldn't have happened without contributions to that fund, and and what we hope hopeful is that people will see the work, and that we will get a second wave of support to to allow us to do more of it, um, because you know it, it does feel like the most challenging and, and important work you ever do in a lot of ways. 
has it been heartening for you as a as an editor to actually see that people will support things that matter as opposed to the things that are incentivized and kind of a cost per click environment because that's not something you run on the site at all is it a cost per click or cost per serve no absolutely not we we think that that is you know what was the sort of original sin of journalism on the internet has created a lot of the perverse incentives which have uh, made media such a bad business um, online so we're, what we're doing is you know we consider ourselves an online magazine and what we sell is much closer to a um you know the traditional magazine idea and that you have um a long-term month-to-month commitment from businesses that think that your audience is attractive rather than full-page ads we're selling pieces of content um and so far the response has been really good there from from both um the businesses and and ngos that support us and and from our audience which seems to instinctively understand whether they kind of care to go and read about its foundation and function or not, they seem to instinctively understand how the spin-off is, is different. And it has to fit in, I guess, with uh, you, you know being honest and open about um, all the different funding streams, doesn't it, and that you're very clear on branded or partner content and, uh, and, and these kind of pieces in the spin-off long-form fund that have no advertising around them. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, and that's... The, the advertising that we do run is very much in terms of a sort of a, a pair of hands to hold the pieces. We, we we don't think that advertising online is particularly useful. In fact, you know, I, when I go to the Herald and I get a you know blaring bright orange Mitre 10 pop up that I have to wait to load, that, has, that to me that's a negative brand experience for yeah. Mitre 10. I wonder how much that helps Bunnings. Yeah, it, it just makes Mitre 10 look a little clumsy to, to my mind. Um, but the idea is that um, the we great environment that's really great to read. We don't have pre-rolls. We don't have interruptive advertising. It is about the content, and, and what we sell predominantly is, is content. We're a content agency as well as a, an online magazine. Um, and, yeah, the, the part of the, what we view as our sort of permission to operate with the audiences that we are very upfront and declare our long-term sponsor relationships and precisely what they entail. We'll talk about it to anyone who calls or, or asks. And the long-form fund is, is very much you know, an extension of that. We are, we're very honest about what our motivations are, the work we intend to do, and um, why, why we're wanting to do it. So, yeah, I, I would love to think that this is something that we grow and eventually becomes, you know, the, the kind of, um, you know, enough cash flow that we can employ, say, like a part-time editor or, or have consistent flow of stories out of it. I, th- I think there's absolutely enough enough stories out there. Well, yeah, because 15 grand sounds, uh, you know, great. But then if you look at a six-month investigation with multiple people working, uh, some serious uh, lawyering in the process, it still must be a massive investment from the team here. Oh, yeah. I mean, on this first story, I, I think there's no doubt that we'll lose money if you counted for everyone's time properly. Um, you know, this photography, legal fees, um, you know, re- replacing Alex, uh, paying Noel. Like, there's a, there's, a lot, there's a lot in there. But I, I think it's worth it. The story is, is worth it. And um, like I say, we, we hope that people on reading it sort of realize that this is um, 
this is feels different um to to the you know this is not something you can knock out in a half hour or even a month you know the the number of things that uh need to be considered and weighed and handled correctly is 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 really really it's really high and and complex but it's 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 very much you know worth doing and it reminds me a little bit of there was a great um quote from a 60 minutes producer from the states a very long standing one and they said what's been the secret to your show's success and he said, I have enough budget that I can kill a fifth of my stories or something to that extent. And that's always really stuck to me that when the budgets are tighter and everyone needs to file five things a day and you need to keep content fresh, everything ends up getting run. And it's those really kind of big pieces where you invest and actually can um, say, no, actually, we've, we've chased this up, but it isn't really a story. Uh, you need to have room for those kind of things. Yeah, I mean, I think that is a really rare and um you know not particularly common situation and it's absolutely true and one of the hardest things you do as an editor is look at a story and say fundamentally this this one's not hunting and the deeper you get with something the harder it is to make that decision i hope that we make it you know for the right reasons and, and frequently enough but but it is it is always there uh sort of you know kind of call, calling to you and and you know again that that's why hopefully this this model where we don't you know if we have an amazing day's traffic or a terrible day's traffic it doesn't affect our income so you want to build your brand you want to tell good stories you want them to be read but you're not scrambling to to sort of meet a budget purely by throwing um stuff out into the digital ether and hoping it'll stick that your your eyes can be a bit bit further down the road that's awesome. Well, thanks for joining us. I'll be really interested to see uh, what the patronage that comes out after um, the story this week and whether that allows for another another, another hit at it next time. Thanks so much for having us on. Appreciate it. Thanks for coming uh, coming on board, uh, Duncan Grieve. Thank you for joining us also. Thank you to Alice Webberdell and Madeline Chapman and see you next time. You've been listening to Business Is Boring. Presented by Simon Pound. All this was brought to your ears by the spin-off and Vodafone Zone. From the spin-off podcast network, that was Business is Boring. Brought to you by SparkLab. Make sure you're following Business is Boring wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information on SparkLab, visit sparklab.co.nz. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and of course past performance does not guarantee future returns. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.